Welcome back to the show, everyone. This is the Suffering Servants Podcast. My name is Pastor Tyler Cronkrite. I get to serve as the Associate Pastor at Family of God and St. Stephen, both in Southwest Detroit. If you've been listening for the last couple of episodes, you have heard our Senior Pastor, Pastor Jim Hill. Uh, he gets to do uh, some of those things with me on the podcast here. Uh, we've co-hosted this podcast for um, all of 2023. We've co-hosted the Jesus Teacher Me podcast as well. Um, and every now and again, I get to sit down with a couple of uh, suffering servants, fellow suffering servants, men and women in the ministry, maybe not even in the ministry, who have suffered in, in a variety of different ways and different things that they've experienced over their over the course of their lives. And uh, Pastor Reedy has quite a story. Pastor Reedy has served as a parish pastor. He has served as a recruiter for Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And he was actually one of the first men on the scene that was not a firefighter or a police officer uh, in New York at Ground Zero when uh, the towers fell on September 11, 2001. And so we're going to cover a lot of ground in this episode today. Uh, I was blessed by it. Um, I called Pastor Reedy a really good friend of mine, and I, I pray that uh, that you are blessed by this conversation. As always, our goal with these shows is not to not to you know pump someone up. It's not to make someone feel bad. It's not even to it's not even to celebrate what they've done. What it is is to let other people know who are suffering that you're not alone in your suffering. Uh, and and that's that's really what we want people to to take away from these from these episodes. And so I pray that that's your takeaway. That no matter what you're suffering with, whether you're in an institution, whether you're in a church, whether you've gone undergone some kind of traumatic event, men like Bill Reedy have been in the trenches with you and continue to be in the trenches with you. And ultimately, we serve a God who is always with us in our suffering, a God who identifies with suffering and has given Himself for us. So I pray that you enjoy the episode. If you do, please rate, review, subscribe. You guys have been doing a really good job of that. Uh, we are so grateful. Pastor Ellen and myself cannot say enough about how much we are grateful for all of you and how much we love each and every one of you. So uh, have a great week this week. We'll be back, Pastor Hill and I, for a brand new episode next week. And as for now, if no one has told you yet, God loves you, and so do we. Pastor Reedy, let's go. <laughs> Pastor Bill, Father Ted, Mgo Bill, Mgo Reedy, good to be with you, man. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to did see I... you this morning, Tyler. It's yeah. uh, it's been a while. Um, it has been. We saw each other much more frequently until both of us became parish pastors. I know, I know. I was I was thinking about that on this uh, this morning before before I actually. Um, when we when I let you, when I admitted you into uh, into the into the room here, um, but I was like, man, I wonder. I was trying to remember what my first interaction with you was, and I think I remember if I remember correctly. I had two two of my best friends who stood in my wedding, Adam and Kevin, um, were uh, were at Concordia in in Ann Arbor, and they were they were doing something with you where you came to visit and you took a bunch of the pre-sem guys out to one of my favorite restaurants, Sidetrack and Ypsilanti, right? So this yep. episode is might as well be sponsored by Sidetrack and Ypsilanti. <laughs> the, the, the amount of times that you and I have spent there over, over those years. Yep. And, um, and Kevin and, and Adam, even though I wasn't technically pre-sem at the time, they were like, why don't you come with us? Like, come meet, come meet Bill Reedy. I was like, okay. So I went at pretty sure that was the first time that I met you. Thanks and, so um, and I discovered quickly that you are you are a huge Michigan fan, which was a uh, 
which was a, a, a check mark plus in my book. And so I, I wore I wore one of my Michigan shirts uh, for you uh, with uh, with this. I don't know if you can see it. I forgot to show you this before. Can you see the back? Nice, nice. With the, just to remind everybody that uh, Michigan is two and zero in the last uh, two years against Ohio State by a combined score of what is it like seventy three to to thirty something. So, uh, <laughs> but it's anyway, each so game is important. Let's not lose track here. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, but also back to back Big Ten champions. So, yep, yep, yep. Uh, so I, I also I just realized this. I have my <laughs> one of my big house uh, water cups yeah. too. I feel like a slouch because uh, I'm not sporting anything, uh, obviously. So that's all right. Well, you're, but you're in Iowa now, so you're in, you're in, uh, you're in enemy territory. So you're, you're in Iowa. Talk, talk a little bit about your congregation a little bit. How'd you end up in Iowa? And um, are you enjoying being back in the <laughs> par- being back in the parish? So in, uh, I had been at. Uh, our Savior's Lutheran Church in Albany, New York, just prior to this. That was my first intentional interim uh, placement. And then in November, I accepted a call here just last year. So I started here uh, January 1. Denison is a town of about 8,000 people in far western Iowa, uh, right in the middle, about an hour and a half north of Omaha, an hour and a half south of uh, Sioux City. And we're just kind of out with the pigs because the two major manufacturers in town are hog production for bacon and hams and such. But then also we have an ethanol plant because you might not know this, Tyler, but Iowa has corn. (laughs) And uh, so corn is used for everything. Um, So Denison is a relatively rural town. It has more hills than other parts of Iowa because we're closer to the Missouri River. Um, Zion is a congregation that obviously has an intentional interim. They went through some uh, struggles because of a, a pastor and the members of the congregation had a vision for new for a new building, new building for the church, new building for the school. And there were other people that were like, you know, we can fix this building. We can stay here. So after that conflict, then I came here in January and we're working through that. The grieving process also of the school a year ago was authorized to pursue becoming a recognized service organization of Synod. So the school's still Missouri Synod. But instead of being Zion again for 139th year, it's actually independent. It's not an association with Zion or the other congregations in the area, but it's a standalone. So there's been a lot of transition going on. And so that's uh, part of the reason why I'm here. Are you uh, are you like were you, is part of your call to help like navigate through all these changes? Like, is that right, right. and has that been has that been tough as a because I think sometimes. I was just having a conversation with Pastor Hill about this the other day. Um, you know, pastors, I think, I think sometimes the the job description can sometimes get confusing to the sense of, you know, congregations that call a pastor, the the sole purpose of a, of a pastor is, as we learned at the, at the seminary, is to preach the word and to properly and rightly administer the sacraments, right? And in a sense, that makes our job incredibly easy to deliver over the goods, so to speak, right? To 
to to preach for, you know forgiveness to preach love the love of christ and to you know lead people in their in their faith journey and at, there are certainly difficult parts of that but i also think that part of it that isn't always included like did, i don't think the seminary ever taught me how to transition help a congregation help a congregation transition to the extent where where you're at and so like how has that been for you as far as like you know, as you're com- as you're coming in as an intentional interim with no knowledge whatsoever of this of this congregation, other than what has been told to you. So, what you're trying to you're trying to learn the congregation. You're trying to get to know the people, all while you're helping them like make this move. Yep. Has has that been difficult for you? Well, it's part of uh, the beauty of intentional interim training is that it prepares you to do what we do. So, on one hand, you're definitely still the you're the called installed parish pastor, but also you have a very unique uh, list of goals of accomplishments that are expected because of being an interim. And the goal is, is that uh, by being intentionally an interim, we can uh, help a congregation, we can help congregations, schools, camps, so forth, uh, not have an unintentional interim where somebody comes in after a long pastorate, after trouble, whatever, and they burn through that pastor relatively quickly because of all that's uh, still uh up in the air, upheaval, hurt, grief. So we come in with a with a very unique approach of needing to get to know the congregation very quickly. I will be here maybe uh, a year and a half to two years. I've been here six months so far. And so there's there's things that are expected because you're preparing for a smooth landing for what we call a settled pastor, not interim, but the guy that'll stay here, and to help them process through things before they call him. And part of that is uh, for the first several weeks, I interviewed over, and anybody was welcome to do it. I didn't pick the people, uh, 40 individuals, 40 plus people at uh, over 45 minutes each, sometimes several hours. It depends on where the conversation went. You listen, you listen to what was, what happened, what uh, I'm not looking for uh, the gory details of the split, and a breaking off of another congregation. But what is it that has happened internally? What's happened to them? What is their vision still for Zion? And to help capture that in a way, because not in a way, but the goal is, is that change will happen from within. Mm -hmm. That you're helping lead them to use their resources, use their vision to come up with a very dynamic and, um, intentional way of moving forward with uh, with a pastor. So you come in and a lot of time spent listening, uh, which the other thing is, is that, you know, I like to talk and, uh, <laughs> but I am relational. So part of that relationship is that I do listen. And so a lot of listening and processing so that you don't just get what was on paper with your call documents and some interim stuff, but you get to hear individual stories and start, yeah. uh, developing a plan that then goes into next steps as far as how are we going to how are you going to bring this out part of it is being a pastor uh offering them the stability and everything that they're looking for but also uh processing some of the other changes and depends on the congregation how you do that yeah how how is that so how do you balance like what is like when you like when you wake up in the morning and you head into your obviously you're not in your office i don't think that's your house nope. um, i'm at home yeah like so you're yes yeah, so you're like when you go into your office i mean how how much time is spent working through 
you know, helping them to create this vision and lead them through this as opposed to like, Hey, I have a sermon to write on Sunday. Right. And, um, like I have a Bible study, you guys have like, a, like a midweek Bible study or something like that, that happens too, or Sunday morning Bible study that you've like, you prepare for too. Like, how do you, I guess my question is, is it, it seems like to me as a, as a pastor who does not have to navigate through things like that, family of God and St. Stephen have their own sets of challenges. And, but, you know, and I find myself, I actually just found, found myself doing this on Saturday. It's like, I had a really long week last week. And I was like, Oh crud, I still have a sermon to write. <laughs> but like, and that's why they've called me is to, is to preach and to teach and while still doing all the other stuff that you had helped to describe, especially with interim ministry. Um, but how do you balance, how do you balance that? It seems like that'd be, especially with interim. And I, I think the challenge I think too might be, knowing that you're not going to be there for that long like too does that does that make sense like is that yep yep. is that something that that you battle with struggle with like in your preaching and in your leading and in your listening like i I feel like because i remember when i was on internship uh i was told by a by my supervisor who's no longer um actually in the lcms um, but he he told me he said don't try to don't get too close to some of the people here because you're going to be leaving. And I, I told them that I thought that that was good advice to a point. Um, I, I didn't want to be completely distant, but I, I do understand what he, I do understand what he meant by that. And um, it was just one of those things where, you know, for you knowing that you said a year and a half, to two years. And when they get in this, they get this new guy, like, how do you balance the relationship? How does that affect your preaching and teaching and all that? Or does it? <laughs> Well, one of the things that happens with having an interim is that you interrupt their homeostasis. Mm-hmm. The, we've always had this. Uh, they've had a long pastorate. They had a shorter term pastor. Um, but I come in as who I am. So yeah. I do things and I sometimes have to caution them that as much as you might like that I do this, it doesn't mean the next guy will. But helping them to think about embracing the individual, embracing Jesus uh, when you have an argument over the the importance of a building, um, and I'm just not a brick and mortar guy because I've been in so many different places. Probably the last brick and mortar building that I have a romantic view with is still the chapel at Concordia Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. That was uh, in so many ways very important to me, both for worship and for meditation and for Boar's Head and everything. Mm-hmm. So I understand that, but. Um, especially in a small town uh, where everybody's kind of related and some people have been here since God created the soil. And so (laughs) it's hard. It's hard to help people understand that I'm here to bring you Jesus. Mm -hmm. I am here. um, A lot of people will lead off with how long they've been here, um, baptized, confirmed, married, everything happened here. But how do we welcome in that new person, the person that doesn't have any connection to anybody in the congregation, they're here to see Jesus like your building. Just it's what my thing is. though, is wanting to see Jesus. Part of that too, is you open the system. And by that, uh, another way that we would say that is identifying the elephants in the room so that when um, you have some, uh, uh, a system, if you will, something that is not healthy, that you kind of name it and claim it, you bring it out, you talk about it, you address it. Sometimes that's one-on-one with people. Sometimes it's behavior at a voters meeting. Sometimes it's restructuring the way we conduct ourselves in general. 
so that we're kinder to one another. As an interim, you come in because you have the freshest eyes in the place. Yeah. You're not from here. You've not even served in this district before. So everything that happens is the same way that a visitor would see it in that um, I'm going to see it a little bit more for exactly what it is. So in doing that, you still have to structure it so that you get all your other work done. I'm a front loader. I try to do certain things at the beginning of the week so that as the week progresses, I still have uh, I, I just I get all the um, essentials done. Bible class, worship. Uh, nursing homes, this sort of thing, which even there, there's some compromise on whether or not you can visit everybody on the standard right. once a month or if it has to be spread out or incorporating other people to do it. Um, and I'm a, I'm a person that still carries a paper planner. Um, Aha, you're one of those people. <laughs> Franklin Covey and I are still good friends. Yes. Um, I have, and I, my thing is, is, I don't care what people use, just be organized. Sure. But uh, and it's part of the fun of being someplace new is don't tell me something on Sunday morning because I don't have my other real brain with me. <laughs> right. To help right. them understand the different ways that people operate in that. Um, but it's just helpful. It's helpful for them to get to know me. That relational part is always um, because I'm just not a person that likes people. You've known that since you've met me, Tyler. I just don't like people. Spending time with them is difficult. Uh, a big time tongue in cheek. So yes. I went out with uh, three ladies, probably all somewhere in their seventies, and we had dinner together one night. And you have to be careful because, as an interim, you want to continue that freshness. You don't want sure. somebody to. We use that expression: "Beware those who meet the truck. Mm -hmm. Beware those who you know are just so wonderful to you." Are they coming in because they want to be wonderful to the new guy on the block or are they looking for an in? And that's very right. important as an intentional interim is because uh, there are systems already in place and I'm not mm -hmm. one of them. So right. that's right. all part and parcel of that balance of making sure you're still doing the word and sacrament ministry of the congregation. But also I'm accountable to the parish planning, the elders and to the district president to keep moving forward on the interim yeah. side. Have you, have you had any, like, you know, cause you, I, I experienced the same thing um, when I taught at one of our Lutheran high schools uh, this year. Um, one of the, the principal pulled me into his office and essentially said the same thing that you said, like you're, you're coming in with, we said fresh eyes. You're coming in from a kind of that bird's eye, bird's eye view. You're coming in with no, with no experience with anyone in here with no um, predisposition towards anything. Like, it's just like you are here and you see it for what it is. And so yeah. what are the things that we can do better? And I, I had, a, I literally was kind of like one of those cartoons where you kind of have the piece of paper and the paper just kind of rolls. It keeps rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. And, uh, and I was just like, here's some suggestions from my point of view. They, they, and they may not even work and they may not even work. And so, um, but there's just a couple of things that to, to consider. Have you had any like pushback, like knowing, okay, you've been trained as an interim pastor and you have been, um, you've been in parish ministry. You've been in, we'll get to this in, a, in a, just a minute. You've been in the institutionalized ministry, meaning like you, you worked at the seminary and um, have you, do you have any like, pushback from people or be like, well, you know, past, do they call you Pastor Bill, Pastor Reedy? 
All of it. Yep. Father Ted? <laughs> Not Father Ted. There's only a couple people. I've told everybody about the Father Ted thing, but uh, most everybody's Pastor Edie, Pastor Bill. Yeah. So, when, like, do they ever say, Pastor Bill, like, yeah, we hear you, but, you know, you've only been here for six months. You've only been here for, for, for you know, a couple of weeks. You've only been here for a couple of months. Like, you don't actually, you don't know, like, what it's been like. Like, do you, have you had anything like that? Coming oh, yeah. After? Absolutely. What you're always going to have, and whether you're an interim or just the new guy, there's that whole desire to repristinate something from the past. They want an era, a program. They want something to return. Um, and because of COVID and some other things, like they used to have three women's groups, Evening Guild. I think it was Evening Guild, Dorcas, and whatever it was, they become one. So that's a change. Um, there's a desire. We have about 175 to 200 people in worship every Sunday at one service. Okay. There's a desire for a Saturday night service. And, you know, some people that have good reason. Some of it is because we've always had one. Um, the other thing is, is that is Saturday night going to serve people that can't come on Sunday? Would Wednesday afternoon or, you know, there's just different ways that you can look at things to find out, to back off far enough that you can find out why. Why mm-hmm. do we want to do this? The pushback, it comes from some very different ways. Like, you know, I got pushback because a certain group thought that it's always been that the pastor does our devotion. Mm-hmm. Well, for at first, their meetings were on my day off. And I'm very, with one day off, I am extremely careful that I mm-hmm. don't compromise my Sabbath to just to come in and to doing a devotion is extremely easy. You can use other people's stuff, but in my mind, breaking that and also to help them understand that maybe, yeah, my thing has always been church council elders. Those are, and voters, but as far as other committees and stuff, I don't necessarily go to trustees or to stewardship or to whatever you're in an advisory capacity. And when it's been done differently before, and all of a sudden you're saying no, no yeah. is uh, no can be a complete sentence. <laughs> Grammarians would argue with me, but no sometimes has to stand any, by. It. Huh? I don't think any grammarians listen. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, they're they're watching. They're not reading. <laughs> they're reading. Um, <laughs> right. Turn on the captions. Practice reading. Right. But it's just kind of, and that's the part that doesn't offend me or challenge me too much because it's part of what we need to do here. Uh, one of the ways to look at it is that if we repristinated the past, we might get you know a handful of people that'll just groove on that. But what is going to help people uh, see Jesus? And what what are people thinking? And without getting into the weeds of specifically Zion, but they have a desire to have more of a welcoming narthex where people can Mm. be about, and there's a congregation in the area that has a beautiful narthex or what if, because so it's our chancel is very deep and it's hard for senior citizens to walk up to the Uh, altar to commune. What if we move the rail down to the uh, main floor or what if we increase the light? You know, there's things like that that sometimes get pushed back because it's, change. Yeah. Uh, I joke that most churches have sacred dust. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't change even the dust because there's something we're afraid. We're afraid we're going to lose the stability. And if we keep focusing them on the message, on Christ, on the salvation that is he won for everybody. And right. that um, 
that's just a, one more quick thing is that I call it scrapbooking to encourage people to recognize history, to recognize yeah. uh, the past, to say, you've got this beautiful scrapbook. Who mm-hmm. helped you to create that incredible history yeah. and very um, involved here at Zion? What what can we do to help others now so that when they become your age, that they can say, oh, I have this beautiful scrapbook. And I've been helping so-and-so. When um, those uh, scrapbooks were just a really big deal, people would get together and do scrapbooks together because it was such a part of that culture. And I think that's uh, where I am as a, as a parish pastor, specifically with interim, is helping to open up new scrapbooks so that other people can have that baptism, confirmation, wedding, that, yeah. that moment here with Jesus. Yeah, that's I've never I've never thought about that. I I might actually consider that with uh, with one of our congregations because they're kind of stuck in that same thing. I mean we yeah. we had someone uh, we had someone that that had uh, literally brought in a they had they had never imagine this they never had a Paschal candle in the time that we had been there, and so we had a we had a student work a stu- guy that was kind of working with us and he brought he bought one because he's just really into church history really into church symbolism and all that and and we've talked to him before about you know hey make sure that you um you know we, we appreciate that your your eagerness and your love for these kinds of things but let's let's just hey just communicate with the pastor because we we want to know what's happening so that when something shows up in the church we actually know where it came from and why it's here because right. um, he had brought he had he had brought a paschal candle and you would have thought that it was i mean it was like like all hell broke loose. What is this doing here? We've never had this before. Um, and the uh, same thing with uh, with those. You remember, like in the really, it sounds like maybe Zion has these the the hymn boards that have like oh, yeah. the yeah. Um, so someone had told him that uh, well, we don't use the hymn boards anymore, and so he took that as well. I'm going to take them down and just move them, and that was like that was a big time no no. And, and we, that, I mean, that, that, that really irritated the congregation that really irritated him. It irritated us. And so we ended up having a big come to Jesus meeting with everybody and come to find out that, I mean, it had that doing that in secret had actually opened up some wounds uh, from that congregation from, from a while ago. And so it made sense that they were, that they were doing. It wasn't one of those things where they were upset at change for the sake of change. Cause I think sometimes we can do that too, where like, you can make change almost an idol yep. where you change just because, you know, for the sake of change. But at the same time, there needs to be, if change is going to help you, like you said, if change is going to help people in your congregation or people outside your congregation that are coming in, it allows them to see Jesus, right? Some Greeks came and said, we wish to see Jesus, right? I mean, that's in Jesus. Okay. My hour, my hour is here, right? So people are coming to see Jesus, and so that's the hour is there for Jesus to be present amongst His people in a very different way. Because we know that He's always with His people, but in a in a much different, more intimate way, right in the in the preaching and in the sacraments. And so, if there's different things like moving the altar rail that allows the senior citizens to come in and and and, and receive Jesus in that way, that's something that that can be that can be considered as well. Um, so you've gone through, you've, you've been in at Zion for six, six months. You were at Our Savior Albany for about a, what did that have been, about a year before that then? 15 months. 15 months. Um, 
but before even that, we were just mentioning used to, you know, my first interaction with you was with, um, was on a recruited on a sounds like we're it sounds like you're like recruiting for <laughs> for like college sports on a recruitment trip where you bought burgers for everybody right um and but that's what you did at for concordia seminary in st louis you were you were the re, the recruiting guy you were you know doing some admissions work and things like that um i guess my question is with with without getting into too much detail for the sake of eighth commandment, for the sake of respect for the brothers, even, even though we may not agree with some of the things that happen, they're still brothers in Christ. They're still, um, so people that God can use. And so I, I, I do want to be mindful of that. I also don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> um, but is there any light that you can shed as to how, how it was that, you know, you, your time, how was your time at Concordia that transitioned out? And do you miss, that kind of in, that kind of inst- the institution kind that side of of ministry because that's just as important as it, it's a different it's a different role I guess that God uses to build up His church as you were recruiting you know young men to to go to the seminary and and become pastors. What was yeah, that, maybe what was that uh, some of my experiences have helped me pre-intentional interim training, I was very resistant to going to the seminary to work because um, I was in a parish in Queens, New York, and it was, I had the call in hand and was invited to be interviewed and then to uh, talk to people I wanted to. And uh, Pastor uh, Bob Hainer, whose two sons are uh, still active pastors, Bob is retired, I went into his office because he had been involved with the district in Michigan, parish pastor, this, that, and the other thing. And I was concerned about coming to the seminary and losing the relationships of being a parish pastor. And he assured me that every year, as at that time he was placement director, he was pastored to the 70 or whatever number of men and deaconess students that he was placing. And that has had always stayed with me, that that was what made going there. And I think Bob, even though he didn't know me super well, knew enough of me, maybe through his sons, that it was a good fit. It was great. I loved building those relationships with, with prospective students. I loved getting to know programs inside and out and the, the things that you just need to communicate so somebody can make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. And um, I enjoyed that. I, I didn't mind the travel. I didn't mind. There was such a balance because you're on campus for a while. You're traveling for a while. You get to go to these Concordias. You get to, to try to ferret out who is interested And that was so important because of having been at the seminary as a student and so on, that making connections with guys that I knew to help find the next generation. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was kind of funny because I had different supervisors over time and we had different relationships. We had different opportunities that sprouted up because uh, sometimes having a doorway meeting and being told, no, you don't have to take that to the faculty. That'd be stupid because it was just not a faculty issue. This is something right. that the provost can decide. This is something that can be done. And I'm biased because I spent most of my years working with Dr. Dale Meyer and the team effort that we had, including a recruitment trip to Concordia, Wisconsin, where he almost got on board his flight that left earlier than mine with my rental car keys. 
and um, had to send a student awesome. back down to the to Mitchell Air Airfield to get my car keys uh, so I could go turn my car in. Um, there was a relationship with that. And when the gospel mark was uh, going around uh, with their presentation, all those relationships were great, different pre-SEM directors. And it was obvious that um, I probably stayed as a recruiter longer than most would. I uh, was there for uh, uh, 10 years total. And uh-huh. as somebody who at that time would have been in my uh, later part of my 50s, new things, new things were, and talk about the changes within a congregation. I knew what worked for me. I didn't necessarily have um, insight into some other areas. I was cautious about them. So when the opportunity came uh, then to move on, um, it was a good thing. It was, I have no regrets of my 10 years at Concordia. Um, There was some incredible times. I mean, I got to meet you. We got to sit down (laughs) in a church and I don't want to disclose our confidential conversation, but to wrestle with residential versus SMP and who you are and family, that was the kind of stuff I loved because even though um, there was, I mean, really, I didn't recruit for the distance programs, but you talk to guys all the time. Right. That Those were the parts that I appreciated was that I was challenged at times to get to know a guy well enough, to get to know his sense of vocation well enough. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that I definitely took with me from the seminary was um, those relationships, that, that kind of bond. I miss it in that um, some of the guys now, the last group that I was uh, actively recruiting um, that made it were on campus before I left, they're coming back as uh, fourth year this year. Fourth year. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. So it's been a blast keeping in touch yeah. with them and hearing how Vicarage has gone and stuff like that. So um, I'm glad that that has continued and it, the number gets smaller, but then somebody, uh, I was at the national youth gathering and it was, um, Let's see, that was last year. So I was in Albany. I was at the National Youth Gathering assisting with registration. And um, it was very obvious that I'm running into a lot of people that I knew. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of all of a sudden somebody said, well, if you were there for 10 years, and we'll just say that 60 new students came in a year, there's 600 guys out in the field that you know. No wonder why you know half of the people that are walking through the line. <laughs> and that was a part of seeing the fruit of your labors, knowing that somewhere, some Sunday school teacher, a parent, a pastor, or somebody. Um, but kind of the cool thing, and I'll just say this before I let you talk again, is that <laughs> to go from the mindset that most of our guys, well, for one thing, the majority don't come from families where their dad was a pastor. Mm-hmm. Then the balance between how many came from a Concordia. The thing that I think is so cool about uh, recruitment were those who had more recently come to faith. Mm -hmm. And some of them only became Missouri Synod because they were Googling and studying and reading and finally found out that this, this denomination was where they wanted to be. That to me was just mind blowing to know, even like Pat Ferry, uh, the, President Emeritus of Wisconsin was an adult convert. He became Christian in college. So those kind of things get very exciting for me because of the fact that I didn't go to a Lutheran school. My first Lutheran school was Concordia College in Ann Arbor. 
those kinds of things uh, are beautiful memories because of seeing the hand of God in the whole thing. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I still remember, I, I remember uh, the shock. I was, I was surprised, not, not because I didn't believe in you, but I, <laughs> I, because uh, it's because I knew at the time you were in St. Louis and I just was like, Hey man, I'm getting ordained. Like if you just happen to find yourself in this area in January. And then um, I actually don't think you said anything back. And, um, and I was like, okay, so I didn't expect you. And then all of a sudden I show up and in walks Bill Reedy to, to robe up and be there for my ordination. That was, that was such a really cool experience to me. And, and for that, um, you know, I think that that speaks to the, not, not just the level of our relationship, but the relationship that you have with these other, with these other men that are, that you've recruited to the seminary, that you got to know at the, at the time that you were there. And, um, it's just one of those things. I, I'm a big advocate of, I mean, relational ministry is if you don't have a relationship with the person, I mean, it's going to make ministry really, really tough. And yeah. so, um, I mean, there's a lot of men I know out there. Um, I was just talking with, uh, with a good friend of mine, good friend of, uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, brother Zach Seralt. And so he's, uh, I know he thinks very highly of you also. And, um, you know, these, a lot of these, you see the, it's kind of like a web, right? And you got, you know, the, this person's connected to this person and this person's connected to this person, this person's connected back to this person who knows this person, who knows this person. Right. And so the, the Lutheran world is, is just, it's one of the more unique things I think about, about, uh, I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to the, to the word synod and being together. And it's just a, it's just a cool thing. Um, so was that, was that then a difficult transition outside of like going from that to, and maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's not the right question to ask. Is it, I, I guess like, does it, has it changed you? The Like kind of what happened? Has it changed your view of institutional ministry? I guess if that, is that the right way of yeah. saying that? Well, especially yeah. in an election year within Synod, I think we're, our, our, Radar is more sensitized to some of the things that trouble us. And for me, it's such a, a Matthew 18 across a very broad, the way we care for one another, the way we care for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, because some of the people that I've had contact with are no longer rostered. That there's people that, um, well, and you've interviewed people on uh, your podcast there are people that have chosen to leave the ministry. Some of them have had to leave the ministry. That to me is still part of who we are as a synod. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, some people would talk about the dirty underbelly or whatever, but there's part of, that's where I think our vulnerability has to be so much more vulnerable is that we need to be aware of where the body of Christ is. That when somebody's suffering because they've had to make a tough decision, they've had a rough time, the placement process, um, none of it is perfect. We're, we're, we go in with our best intentions, but humans mm -hmm. are involved. I don't believe artificial intelligence would change any of that because yeah. we're people. We're, we're people that were gifted by God. But that's the hard part is when you leave a ministry, there's always going to be grief. Grief yeah. for the people that were there, people that do the leaving. So that was the way it was for me. But then it also kind of uh, got my radar up a little bit or my antenna up for um, 
guys that were just recently ordained that were already having major struggles, guys that were um, leaving parishes, were getting a leave of absence and so on. So I wonder in a way if sometimes my struggles help me to be more sensitized Mm. that when I would hear through the grapevine, well, did you hear he left that parish or um, whatever else is going on? That was in a way um, the world would say misery loves company. But it wasn't a chance for us to get together and vent. It was an opportunity for us to connect by phone or sure. messages by Facebook or however, that we were able to communicate with one another in a way that wasn't there was no shame. Mm-hmm. That we're always going to feel a bit of shame no matter what went wrong with a decision we made. But to be able to come along other side, people know you're okay. Mm-hmm. That that's that's the part that I, is so hard within the church is if we have to keep up appearances that are just not there. Um, and I, I was used to it at one level because there would be people that I was recruiting wherever along the line. It might be that they were not seen by the admissions committee or districts or whoever was recommending them to be along and to help them realize that it's not like, OK, you're off my list. You're done. Um to this day, sometimes I'll get a, a an inquiry from somebody wanting to ask about something, and generally they need to just call the seminary. But it's that that part of us as a body that goes, oh yeah, I remember um, one of the things that I you know, we sometimes say paper cut. I don't know if you've ever had it where your fingernail separates from the skin, like right at the yeah, and it's, it's such a minor thing. But if that's if it seems to be minor to us. The person owning that pain right now hurts. Yeah. Um, and just this last spring, just right around Easter, uh, Pastor Andrew Johnson, who was serving in Manila, um, he had mm-hmm. had cancer earlier yeah. on. And uh, when it got closer, what a beautiful time to spend with him where we could still, we didn't have to talk about cancer. We didn't have to talk about death. We would get together and talk. Yeah. And uh, he was only about a half hour from here. That to me is part of our being a pastor and a brother is those times when we're just, we just continue on those walks, even when it's different, um, which is kind of with the whole thing with your, with the podcast theme and looking at these, these challenges is uh, going out of our comfort zone to say, brother, you make me nervous, hmm. but I'm going to come alongside and walk with you a while because, you know, Sometimes uh, we need to give respite care to family and to elders and other people because we have that bond, whether it's, um, you know, through the recruitment process that started with us or uh, other times as well. Yeah, I uh, first of all, I didn't I didn't realize that you were that close to uh, to Andrew. Um, That was if if you're if you're not familiar with that, Andrew, um, he's how long has it been since since the Lord called him home? Um, just before Easter, I think just it was before Easter. I don't remember. It was because his funeral was right after Easter, but I yeah, don't remember right. exactly that's when right. he died. That's but, right. Cause he, know. I believe, I believe his wife had, had posted that he had, he had passed during Holy week and how actually like the timing of that was like, I get, I'm, I got chills, you know, thinking about that, just how the spirit works in that way. There's how beautiful it was that it happened. Um, you know, at, on during the week that we celebrate what Jesus did for us and because of that. And, um, 
I I didn't realize that you that you were able to to do that with him. It was a remarkable story um, to to follow. You know, I, I mean, he was he was he took every every minute that he had to proclaim Christ to people and to use that as use that suffering uh, as an opportunity actually to witness. And um, that's pretty awesome that you got to that you got to walk alongside him like that. That's pretty sweet. I didn't realize that. That's that's uh, that's awesome. Um, but to your point you too about trying to bless yeah. him and he kept on blessing us. I, it was just I, like, right, right. Yeah. I know, well, his that, shovel was bigger. He kept on I, just shoveling <laughs> it back in a beautiful right. way. Yeah. It's, it, but that's how, that's how visits often work. Right. I mean, I just, I just visited one of our, one of our ladies in the, in the hospital yesterday in between, in between, um, services and it was the same kind of deal. I mean, they, it's, it's often when you go and do a hospital visit or a home visit, um, I would say nine times out of ten, the the pastor is the one that walks away being blessed yeah. by by listening, and um, I think most pastors would would agree with that. Um, to your point too about the about you know the the Matthew eighteen thing and the you know the stuff that comes up within within ministry, and I, I've heard a lot of people. First of all, if you're if you're listening and you don't know the Matthew eighteen model, uh, it's basically. Uh, you know, if, if, if brother Bill has done something to, to hurt me or is in sin or, you know, and, and there's something that he's doing that I believe needs to be called to repentance, it's the approach to this is one, you go, I go to him first. This is how Jesus teaches. It. I go first. And then if he still refuses to repent, then or doesn't see it, I shouldn't say refuses, but still can't see it. Then you bring two to three others, and then at that point you bring you bring it before before the congregation, and so. Um, but it's all done. It's all done with love, and it's all done with the with the purpose of calling to repentance. Would you say that's an accurate assessment of of that model? And so, someone asked me one time, you know, why is the church why can the, why is the church so mean sometimes, or why is the church so broken, or why is the church this or that? In my answer, it's pretty standard, and it probably um, is going to seem very. Um, it's just like a platitude, I guess. Uh, the church is full of sinners. Like at the end of the day, even your pastor is a, is a sinner. He's he is a um, he's someone who makes mistakes over and over and over again. Your board president, somebody who makes mistakes over and over and over again. The men who are at the seminary right now, the, doing the teaching and the administration, they're all sinners. The, I mean, and that's been, that's been the case from, from my time there, from the people, the generation before me and throughout generations that this world is run by sinners. Um, now God is in control, right? But the, with the people that God entrusts to these situations, um, we're sinful people. And, and that can sometimes, that can sometimes create some really tough situations and you, you kind of know what that, what that's like. You're kind of on the butt end of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the part that, uh, even here, it was, uh, most of us, if we took it out of the context of being interim and all this stuff, I had, um, grieved somebody I had sinned by not considering a decision in light of somebody else's role. And I appreciated it that they came and talked to me because um, I could be dismissive and say, get over it or something like that. But I hurt them. 
and that yeah. was the part that was so important for me was to to have them love me so much that they wanted this relationship to continue and were willing to talk to me about something relatively minor. They probably could have just blown it off too, but it helped me then to also grow and making sure that communication happens better, that we we keep a broader circle, we keep more people involved so that people have ownership and decisions and everything else that grew from that. So sometimes that little, little pain that we've caused or has been, we've been hurt, it's when we address that, boy, the healing that can happen is just mm -hmm. tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've experienced that in, in, in my own life um, with big, with big things and with little things. Um, I mean, even, even my, my wife and I are learning this. I mean, we've been, we've been married for four and a half, four and a half years. And uh, whenever, whenever I do something stupid, which is quite, quite often, um, <laughs> she will, she's gotten to a point where I think she can say, she can say to me and I, because the other thing too is like there's a certain level of trust that needs to be had too right where like like the the person that you that you had sinned against if he he can come to you and he if he he has to be able to trust that when he comes to you that you're going to be willing to receive that right and mm -hmm. receive that in the way that it's that is it's intended to be so like if i do something um, that, that hurts the, my wife's feelings. And I may not even think, like you said, just blow it off. Just don't, don't worry about it. Like, I didn't mean it like that, da, 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 da. but at the end of the day, you, you still hurt someone. And so, you know, I've gotten to a point where, you know, just like you, like, I appreciate that because now it helps number one, it opens up that line of communication, but number two, it helps me to actually be, be in a position where, you know, it's kind of like what, what Luther says in the, in the first, the first of the 95 thesis, right? Christian life is one of repentance, be willing to repent, be willing to acknowledge that you made mistakes. And so, um, I, would you, would you say that you're a better pastor because of your time at Concordia? Yeah. Part of it was, um, the beauty of going into intentional interim is that you go through 13, 12, 13 weeks or whatever online. And then one very intense, uh, week, with people uh, being trained for intentional interim and it's pan Lutheran at that point and being able to hear uh, a little tongue in cheek, but you know, sometimes people might question curriculum review and yeah. things that get added and subtracted from a curriculum and what's required on vicarage and so on and so forth. It was fun to, because I was not, part of the academic staff. I was not part of those decisions, but, you know, having to communicate that for all that time, it helped me to self-evaluate and to have a mentor that uh, through intentional interim that was so uh, refreshing to go from recruiting, 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 supporting, da, 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 to now having to evaluate my skills and what I was doing in light of I had this great foundation from the seminary, but now what, what do I need to learn at, um, how old was it? 61 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, what am I going to learn today that is going to be fresh and new? And so, yeah, that I think, um, not that I think we should all go through intentional interim training, but that kind of very intentional education to enhance where you are going next was huge. It wasn't like going to a conference where we we're going to dissect Matthew uh, with Dr. Gibbs. That would be wonderful. <laughs> but there's that, that part of just a whole new skill set on being a good pastor. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the practical side is what hits the road every single day, along with the other, uh, the other uh, theological 
departments, but uh, that practical part just needed to be sharpened. Yeah. Well, praise God for your ongoing ministry. I do want to speak a little bit about, we got a little bit of time left and I want to use, I want to maximize that. And one of the things is there's probably a lot of people who I know that are listening that may not know one of your, like one of the things that I think that you may, are you, are you known like amongst your circle of friends and amongst colleagues as, about what happened with nine eleven, like is that a thing that that like you're known for that you were one of the first guys that was able to to be there and being present at the sites and stuff like that? Is that something that you're like he's he's the nine eleven guy? Like <laughs> I feel like I don't want to be known as that, but to a certain extent because people Google. And so, like, even before I got here, people just put my name in, uh, whether it was on Facebook or Google. And uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's called this officially, but you can do a vanity search. So oh. <laughs> if you really want to know what you can find out about a person, about yourself, Google your name. Google your and, name. Um, different presentations that I'd given in a paper I wrote show up. Yeah. So it's out there. People know about it. I don't lead with it, but sometimes people will introduce me it. that way yeah. um so yeah it's so, I, so that I, I say all that i say all that because i want to i i want you to talk about it i, I want yeah. to i want because i think it's fascinating the the bits and pieces that i've heard from different parts when you spoke about it at concordia a couple of years ago uh you were actually on i think it was on fox 2 news they did a segment yeah. or something here while you were while you were at concordia on a recruitment trip and um I don't think they they didn't they didn't do your the entirety of your story justice, but um, you were you were serving in you said Queens, right? When yeah, yeah, well, serving I, in Queens, and then the and then the terrorist attacks of of September 11, two thousand and one happened, and uh, and you were you were you responded, you were God called you to respond to all that. Well, and the the funny the. Humorous part is that around that same time, I was the first on the scene for when one of our churches in Brooklyn uh, was on fire. I uh, rode out Katrina with the National Youth Gathering staff in New Orleans, and I think there's another disaster in there somewhere. Um, so I was known for a while as a disaster pastor. So <laughs> it was it was risky to stay uh, anywhere near me at times because it seemed like I was uh, in this mode, but Amazing that um, you yeah. still have friends. so at the time I was serving two congregations for the deaf and a school for the deaf on long Island. The one church was in Queens near LaGuardia airport. The other one was in Harlem, which is upper Manhattan, 145th street. So I had been there a year and had been in and around the city enough, both for ministry as well as just because I was exploring. So I was very familiar with it, been in the World Trade Center, all this kind of stuff. So it, on that Tuesday, it was just a, a odd thing that it was on the news. And um, I called our district office to talk to our district president because I didn't know, was this a time when you try to help out or do you stay out of the way, this sort of thing? And he hadn't even heard yet what had happened. So I had to fill him in on that. And then um, he said, if you can, basically, if you can get in, go. So I did. And it was all a, a chain of events that, in hindsight, was pretty cool that, like, going in on the Long Island Expressway from Long Island, where I lived at that time, the Long Island Expressway is referred to as the world's longest parking lot. It doesn't move. Um, that day, I chose not to take a train because I'd already heard theirs being shut down. 
that getting on the expressway, um, I did that thing that's illegal. There's several illegal things that I did. One was following closer than 500 feet behind an emergency vehicle. Uh-huh. And so as long as my Corsica would uh, go, we went. And I got to just about to Manhattan when um, they were signaling everybody had to get off the road unless you had flashing lights. So I parked the wrong way on a one-way street. And um, I could see from that vantage point the, t- the Twin Towers. And then I rode in with – I just walked down to the highway. I had a clerical collar on. I walked down there, and the construction workers helped stop uh, a large black SUV with an FBI agent in it. And I rode into Manhattan with her, and then uh, the rest of it unfolded the rest of that day. But I made it in in record time from the time the second plane hit the tower. Um, we were actually coming over the this bridge that goes over the rail yards. We were on this bridge when the um, South Tower collapsed. And so we saw it from that vantage point. And then I was down uh, within four blocks of the World Trade Center for an unknown amount of, for just a short period of time praying with people and such uh, when the North Tower fell. So um, that was, uh, people would say, a God thing, that that was not normal to be able to. But also going through the through the Midtown Tunnel at high rate of speed is not normal. So uh, there was a lot of things. But even seeing the, the people in Manhattan still unaware, going about their business as we went flying by in this SUV, was a very surreal experience for for this person. What's like? What's going through? Like, I I get like so when I go to a hospital or I go to a home visit or I've I've responded to um, various situations uh, in in our neighborhood with overdose and things like that. And when I'm called upon or Pastor Hill is called upon to to you know to pray and to be present in those situations. Um, my head is, my mind is racing. Like, and I'm trying to like, okay, if if I'm going to be asked to pray, like I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are the words that I can say to God that these people are going to hear that are going to also, that are going to do two purposes, right. That are going to communicate, help this person to communicate and maybe even, um, maybe even, uh, you know, mediate between them and God, right. As, as what prayer is. But like, I also want them to hear words that are comforting. And so like, I, I try to like almost like pre-plan what I'm going to pray. Did, was were you was that happening for you too? Like knowing like or were you just like I'm going off the hand? I have no idea what the hell's going to happen, so I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants and just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work through this. Like what's going through your head as you're going into this situation? When um, so I'm here with this FBI agent and she. Don't know her name, never saw her again. And we're both flying by the seat of our pants because when the North Tower fell or the South Tower fell, I just said to her, because she's driving, I said, uh, it's gone. And she said, what's gone? And I said, the South Tower just collapsed. And then we heard it on the radio. And she's the one that said uh, first, she just said to me, because you're wearing a collar, she doesn't know I'm Lutheran and it's not the time Mm -hmm. to go through all that. Um, she said, Father, I don't know what either of us is going to do there, but we need to get there. Mm-hmm. And that was the the emphasis throughout that day, because at that time, my mouth went completely dry. I yeah. remember very vividly that it's just like, what what's going on here? 
when we were flying down Second uh, Avenue going south towards the uh, wind up, I got off right by one police plaza, the FBI, FBI building there and everything. And I kept on thinking that I'm going to find that I'm going to see there's going to be an FDNY NYPD chaplain there. And mm-hmm. I will just do whatever he or she tells me to do. And when I got there, there was one lone, relatively young FDNY or uh, NYPD cop physically telling, just stood there and told people they can't go through. And so the thing was, it was like a beacon wearing this collar that I never had to think because people came up and just fell into your arms and started crying. And so you pray. Mm. Um, Later on, after the tower collapsed and I went over to West Side Drive where they were deploying people, the desire to be blessed was just huge. Mm. And so I stood on a Jersey barrier, those concrete barriers, and or it was a lower one. And there's just a line. They came up and it was tradition uh, in New York and on the East Coast a lot where when you go in and you actually use oil and anoint people. And I had that with me. And I don't even know how many people or how long I was there, but just one after another after another came up for a blessing. Some wanted to have confession. Some wanted to pray. And you just, the nice thing was I didn't, after things started, I really didn't have to think too much. That was the, the spirit just took over. Yep. Spirit just took over. That's, that's, that's incredible. Um, What were the, like, like what were the obviously there's a lot of fear and terror um and just general probably confusion but like when people were asking you for prayer like was your prayer just like what were people asking for prayer for like was it as simple as was it just you know father or pastor uh pray for me or pray for my family pray for my like my, my uncle, my friend, or whoever was in the tower, pray for them, or like what were the what was kind of the um like what are the prayer requests? I'm just curious. Like, or was it just like a general prayer, or was there actually like specifics? Um, a lot of things. Yes. One of them with the, when I was just when I was blessing people, the routine was they would come up to me, I would ask them their name, and just because of my personality, you have to know the humorous side. One guy told me his name, and I was like, you could pronounce that 500 times. I still wouldn't be able to get it right. <laughs> and he just said, they call me Joe. I can do that. <laughs> and so my routine was that I would anoint their head with oil, and then I would um, put my hands on their shoulders and uh, bless them in the name of the Trinity. And then I would, uh, that God would watch over them, protect him as they as he served that day. It was very quick and all that because then they would go from me to my left and there were guys with Sharpies. And so they would take off their their gear and write on their arm, either a phone number or a social security number or whatever. So that if they were, uh, if there was another collapse or anything else that day, that they would be able to be identified. So they just kept on moving. One more specific one was um, we were right at the corner of West Side Drive and uh, Bessie Street, which is an intersection right basically north of the north where the North Tower had stood. And I saw this figure walking toward me and um, just could recognize that he was a firefighter. But because of the debris, kind of like with the smoke that's been in the air, you just couldn't see much. Um, 
the smoke in the air after the Canadian fires. But um, I saw him and he walked up to me and just fell in my arms. He was a firefighter and he had all this debris in his helmet and he was just sobbing. He said, Father, they're all dead. Every mm -hmm. last one of them's dead. And so while I was holding on to him, he told me that he and his partner had gotten out of the North Tower before it collapsed. And they had just held each other's hands. And they said, when you see there's no more people jumping, just yell, go. And he said, we'd been watching and just trying to stay away so we wouldn't get hit by debris or by a person. And then one of us, he said, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, go. And we were holding on to each other's hands and we were running as fast as we could. And pretty soon he was gone. And so this man, I didn't realize it for a couple of seconds, but I was the first live person he saw. Mm -hmm. And the last person that he saw that died was his partner. And he had to keep running because of the, the tower collapsing. And he said, Father, they're just all dead. There's people everywhere and they're all dead. And just to imagine, um, for me, looking when after we had hugged for a while and wept, I remember looking into his eyes. And when they say that the eyes are the window to the soul, in that moment, I felt like I was looking in eyes that that's really for God. This is not something this was this was way above who I was. But I could see so much um, in his eyes that communicated because. He's filthy. He's just completely covered in debris except for his eyes. And we stood there for a while, and then uh, some other firefighters came by and um, washed his eyes out and stuff. And then fast forward, I don't know, whatever amount of time later, he came by and he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, you better pray with me again. I'm going back in. And so then, again, anointed him, prayed for him. Um, that God would protect him. A lot of it was uh, for protection because the there were fighter jets in the air and only people that know military would have been able to reassure us that at least they're all ours. We didn't mm -hmm. know. So there was these fighter jets going back and forth, back and forth. There was a lot of rumors going on. So most of the prayers were for safety and protection. Um, earlier when I was with, the, with families that were trying to get in to find their relatives, it was for um, for them to be found, for them to be safe, that sort of thing. But then for, um, we didn't know it in the moment, but we didn't realize that after the towers collapsed that basically there were no more survivors. There were, everybody had died. And it wasn't until um, that evening that we, when Building 7, which was part of the complex, mm -hmm. was on fire, but it didn't collapse until about 5.30 that night. Um, it hadn't been struck by any by either jet it just had by fire nobody died in there and the hope was was that once we could get on the other side of building seven that there'd be more recoveries and there just weren't there's this whole triage area that was set up to receive the injured and it never happened wow that's um what was there was something i don't remember i don't remember where it was because it's i would mean i was September 11th, I was in fourth grade. That's one of those moments where you, where you remember, like you'll never ever forget where you were. Right. Obviously for you, you'll never forget where you were because you were there. Um, but I remember watching on TV. It was one of those things that that night we went to church. I went to church with my family. I was like, <clears throat> who, who goes to church on a Tuesday night? Um, but I remember going to church with my family and that was all of us just sat and prayed. And there was like almost like a popcorn kind of a prayer where people would pray. And then, 
Um, the, and then our pastor blessed us and things like that. Um, there was something where there was a pastor who prayed with a bunch of people and they got like, then they get like in trouble because uh. they, because they, they, they had the audacity to pray with non-Lutherans or something like that. I don't remember. I I might be, I might be completely out of line in saying that I, no. might, I might, or I might be mis mishearing or misunderstanding, but I thought that he had gotten in trouble because maybe there's a little bit more to it, but what was the, what, do you remember, do you remember that? That wasn't, right. that was right. that wasn't, that wasn't you, right? No, it wasn't me. It was my district president. Um, that's right. That's right. That's right. Events, he got invited to go to Yankee Stadium and that's what it was. Be a part of a, a, whether or not it was a service. Because, I mean, when you have that many different religions around and Oprah Winfrey. Um, so, yeah, he prayed there and that got him in all sorts of trouble. And, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, that he was there and that he prayed and so on and so forth. The beauty of it was, was that he ended up being the lightning rod that nobody knew it was beautiful that nobody knew that I was going down there. I was there for uh, my day off and stuff. I was at the site about anywhere from one to three times a week and nobody questioned me or anything because everybody was worried about David Banky's behavior (laughs) and being reprimanded and suspended and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there's certainly enough ink that got spilled on that to, the part that is still, whether it was my actions, Dr. Benke's actions or anybody's, is that there's no textbook written on all this stuff. Right. Um, I would hope we always use good judgment and, um, you know, remain faithful. But then there's sometimes where it's just like, well, you know, we'll get over this by Monday. You know, it's just it's I'm not excusing. I'm not doing anything for anybody other than saying that I would was fine having other people debate all this because um, I had other things to do and didn't yeah. see, you know, there's elements of it. You know, just, we can dissect that, yeah. hold a seminary class for it. Right. You know, yes, I don't know. Um, but it was just one of those things that uh, it was going on up at Yankee stadium. And I think it was started by a bunch of Mets fans or something. I don't know. <laughs> The only the only reason the only reason that I brought that up was um, because I I don't think I, I mean I can't I can't speak for you but I, I feel like I know you pretty well and to to know kind of maybe what you're thinking when when tragedy strikes like that you're not thinking oh is the person in front of me that I'm praying with is is he or she and not a Christian at that point like I, I'm still gonna I'm still gonna pray for God to to be yeah. in this person's life and and it's like you kind of get that tunnel vision, so to speak, where like nothing, nothing else matters except for the person that's in front of me. Like for you, I mean, you were, you were probably blessing, you were blessing people from that of, of all different kinds of walks of life, right? People who are coming up to you in that line, right? Um, it's kind of like, you know, we, we say that, you know, at the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So you've got you've got all these kinds of people. We probably had people from different sexual orientations. You had people from different races. You had people from uh, from different religious backgrounds. You probably had, I mean, did you have like, I mean, Muslim, Jewish, all these other, I mean, people that were coming up to you just ask because at that point they're they're looking for something. 
they're just they're just like they need some kind of a comfort and you're like you said you had the you had the 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 collar right that's kind of it was kind of blinking right as almost an, or like a magnet right that's like just drawing people to you because they're looking for the man with the collar they're looking for the man with the answers they're looking for the man who you know it's not theologically correct but they're looking for the man that has the highest connection to god right and so in that moment they're looking for they're looking to you and i was just i like to think that if it was me i would not like I wouldn't be thinking about the person that's in front of me. I mean, I would be thinking, you know what I mean? I'm not thinking about what they're, wh- where they're from and kind of what, even what their beliefs are. I would be thinking this is a person who, who needs Jesus and God has appointed me to be that person right now. And so if I'm not, you know, if a, if a person who comes, who comes up to me and is outwardly, you know, giving the, the characteristics of someone who's Muslim or Jewish, right. I, I, I might not, pray to like to their god but i'm gonna pray with them to the god that that sees them and loves them and cares for them right um is that that, am i right in saying that that's something that wasn't going through your head well two things one was that there were rabbis there um actually that's one of the humorous times when there was just a little bit of a lull the um one of the rabbis had a big water cooler container and cups. And so, and he was Orthodox. He had the talus and the hat and the whole bit. And, um, but, you know, you can't pour and have the cups. So I was giving out cups and helping him and all this stuff. And in a very beautiful accent, he looked at me and he said, Father, this is the beginning of a very bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Priest and a rabbi walk into ground zero. Um, Oh no. I mean, I feel like, I feel like you have to be, you have to have some kind of a sense of humor about it. Otherwise it's, it's just all tragedy. And you got to have coping. And that was, and I'll come back to the September 11th specifically, but there was even um, during the next nine months working at the site, because things happen. Like, um, quick story: we only had porta potties. We didn't have any indoor restrooms, and somebody didn't know it was me in the in the porta john. And I thought we had another collapse because all of a sudden the porta john was shaking. And when I came out, and the guy saw who it was, they were just devastated because they thought it was another firefighter that was in there. So they were harassing one of their brothers, and I said, <laughs> you know. Being who I am, nothing more fun than being harassed. So right. uh, we had a good moment on that. But back to the part that I would ask them their name. The part that was so cool was, you know, there's that old uh, expression, there's no atheists in foxholes. I don't know about that. I just know the people that came up that would sometimes say my baptism name, my mm. confirmation name. And so I'm like... These are God's people. These are Christians who, whatever their journey has been, at some point they had had the sacrament of baptism. They may or may not have been confirmed. And it was, I am using that same name and invoking the same name that was said over them at their baptism. And that that was the part that was beautiful. The only part that was kind of interesting was when people didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And so I did hear confession in Spanish. And I only knew absolvite, absolvite. And he just had communicated to me that he wanted me to hear his confession. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, God here. 
So there were some language barriers, but as far you know, I don't know. I don't because it was very obvious that I was a Christian uh, wearing a clerical. I don't know, like you said, as far as their orientation or where they came yeah. from. And one of the confessions was um, that you know, if God gets them through this, not saying that this was only happening. He said, "I need to get some things right, including my relationship with mm-hmm. my wife." And uh, and he said, "It's not her fault; it's me." And uh, you know, so you hear these things, and. Um, so it was just at that time, same way during the the next nine months, there would be times where guys were just having a tough time and or women, and you just spend some time with them. There's pastoral moments that then there was more time for pastoral moments because we would have time between the recovery of bodies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was my next kind of follow up question. It was how how was how were the the weeks and the the months and even maybe even you know up to even years maybe this kind of thing sticks with people. If you if you had somebody who that you knew died, or if you're you know that firefighter that collapsed in your arms and and you were in the buildings and things like that. I mean, those are very traumatic events, and so that stuff can stick with you. And so the you know, so two this is kind of a two-parter, I guess. It's it, you just kind of alluded to it. You had some moments where you were able to talk with with people over the course of that time. People who have, you know, maybe it's just those feelings of grief kind of just they just kind of swell up. It's kind of I mean, it's just like anyone else, right? Um, but for you, like, did it, how did you personally like when you got home that night? Um, and then in the coming days, like, did, was there any part of that day that just like, you just can't get images out of your mind? Like, did that cause you any kind of trauma or any kind of things that like you said to God, like, please, God, take this, take this away from me. Is there anything that just kind of stays uh, with you? Um, walking down the street after the tower had collapsed walking down the street and seeing a plane engine in the middle of the street. Um, there was things that became, they helped sharpen the reality as if what you saw, but just you saw things that would be familiar. You know, that is a plane engine sitting in the middle of Park Avenue mm-hmm. or whatever I was on. And you're just not Park Avenue, but parks anyway. Um, there was just moments like that, but also especially that the firefighter that night, uh, or that afternoon, uh, whatever time of day it was, those kind of things were just blazing on my memory. But then also some things during the rest of the nine months, one of them was on New Year's Day. Um, it was just happened that it was the day that we were bringing bodies out of where the Marriott Hotel would have been, South Tower, North Tower, and the Marriott was in between. That was where all the firefighters were being deployed from. So once we got down to that level on New Year's Day, so the rest of September, October, November, December, finally uh, there, the recoveries that were being made from there were firefighters. And so their name is on their backside. There's just ways to identify them. And so we were inv- we were calling their houses, their firehouses, to have them come over to be a part of bringing their brother out of out of the pile. And those were memorable on January one, both because of the just the sheer number, and a lot of them mm-hmm. were from Ladder One Eighteen in Brooklyn. And then at the end of the day, um, a day a moment that I was so cared for was. We'd get all the, we'd put all the, after they were examined in the morgue for any preliminary identification and stuff, then they were put on a morgue, in a morgue truck and taken over to Bellevue Hospital. And the, 
there's two things that fit in with what you were asking is that uh, nobody left ground zero alone. Whether it was a body or us, we always walked each other off the site. And when the morgue truck was filled, we would always send a firefighter or police officer, somebody with them. And as it was pulling away, it was the end of my shift and whatever number of hours I had been there. I turned around and one of the chiefs was standing up by the morgue and um, he said, Father, are you okay? Or chaplain, he actually said, Chaplain, are you okay? And I said, no. Hmm. That having been there for over a month, because there were some other parts of the story in between, but um, I was exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted because of having people that knew this person. Um, and so I remember just we hugged and cried, and uh, <laughs> that was just so important for me to be cared for. Um, sometimes we would uh, we would just walk each other, whether it was to the subway or somebody to their car. There was just that part. But on um, on September 11th, when I went home, um, a I didn't know how filthy I was, um, and just uh, so I'd gotten a. I had to walk up to Union Square, which is in lower Manhattan, but it was where electricity was. So that was where I was able to get a train. So I took a train from there to, to Union to Penn Station. And there was one other person on the car, which was rare to have that much, even at that time of night. And um, he looked at me and I looked at him and I didn't realize yet. I saw that I was dirty, but I didn't mm-hmm. know how bad. I looked at him and he said, where were you, Father? And I said, um, Church and Chambers, the intersection. I said, where were you? And he said, 16th floor of the North Tower. Oh, that's wow. all we said. And so there were those moments that are just um, as real on this day as they were that day. And then the last one would be is um, on June 2nd, 21 years ago, Jack, Carlos, to uh EMTs that I worked with and myself were there the last day, our last um, shift. And um, we actually, when I lived in Albany, um, Carlos's wife had died. And I went down for uh, the visitation for that. It was the first time I saw those two men after serving together. And our whole thing, our whole theme was um, being about a greater good, making a mm-hmm. difference. And how important those two men were to me, because for the most part, those were the two guys I worked with the most. Okay. Um, but they were just phenomenal, phenomenal men. So um, that teamwork, it wasn't just like working alone. There was actually about seven of us that were in the um, morgue all the time. Firefighters, FBI, photographer, different things. So medical examiner. So um, there's a lot. Okay. Well, it's, I, I'm. I had a hunch that you weren't doing the doing it by yourself. I don't know anybody that could do it by themselves. I'm. I'm glad to hear that it's that the that the other the firefighters and the EMTs that all of these guys were and gals were taking and taking all the magnitude of the situation into into account. And so even little things. I mean, so you said the morgue truck. So like obviously there's a driver. So you just send somebody with the driver, right? Just to ride with them. So like, cause that's gotta be, I mean, you're the guy that's transporting these bodies to the, I mean, just all, there's just so much, so many things that I don't think everyone fully considers all the time too. And so, um, I mean, I mean, months and months of, of recovery, right. And, and figuring out just where everyone isn't getting, getting the, everything cleaned up and, um, 
I mean, that's I I don't know how you did it other than the grace and the strength of of yeah. Jesus Christ. I mean, that's that's an amazing testament to um, what God can do through that in in you know in the relationships that you that you have cultivated. Do you still talk to any of those or interact or followed up with any of those guys that Jack, you interacted yeah. with? Yeah. Jack Carlos and I, uh, we had lost touch for years. Um, but then there was just a couple of just quick things. Um, I was at the bar where I became uh, Father Ted for a Wounded Warrior Project. I was actually the chaplain for that. And um, so I'm in the pub uh, getting ready to have an invocation. And I hear this voice and they say, chaplain, come here. <laughs> and so while I was chaplain, and so I went over and they said, you might not remember us because we had rest, uh, full face respirators and goggles and hard hats and all this stuff. But you were our chaplain at Ground Zero. And we've been to Iraq. We're back now. We're back with the FDNY. And two weeks from now, we're doing this project called uh, St. Baldrick's Foundation. Mm-hmm. We're getting All of us are getting our heads shaved, and so are you. So, you know, this is this was several years, two, three years after the site was closed in a bar for a wounded warrior event. You know, you just you have a reunion and you you see these people. There was a couple other chaplains we've stayed in touch over the years because we would uh, we would relieve each other. And one was an ELCA guy that we went through some additional uh, training for disaster response. And so, uh, yeah, there was just some of those connections. But Jack and I, Jack Carlos and I stay in touch now that we've reconnected. Um, They're both retired. Uh, Jack is into uh, photography and just the gentlest, gentlest person you would ever want to meet. So uh, Facebook is a gift. Facebook is nice. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. Yes, it is. Um, That's that's quite. So that's that's where St. Baldrick stuff is that where that all that all your involvement with St. Baldrick's came? Yep. It was all peer pressure. It was just being shamed in by a bunch of firefighters that are police officers that I was going to do it. And so I started it. I think this was my 16th year. And, uh, yep. It grows Cause back. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, you were, Cause you were doing that. You do, you got the, you got some of the SEM guys to do that too. Yeah. Over, uh, we raised, uh, at the seminary about $10,000 a year for St. Baldrick's and, Everybody from Dale Meyer to Dr. Olowski and some others were participating off and on through the years. And every year we would have anywhere from 15 to 25, 30 guys. And we had a lot of women do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Beth Holke, Dr. Holke, she did it. Um, so they braved the bald. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Father Ted, uh, thank you for uh, for joining joining me this morning, and for I mean, we cover a lot of ground, and I'm sure that's not even half of what the of what we could have potentially talked about. Um, so maybe maybe that means that you'll just have to come back on, and we'll talk about some other things. But uh, I I really appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. Um, I never, I never knew that uh, when I went to sidetrack with Adam and Kevin that one night and met you for the first time that uh, that I was going to meet a dear friend. And so I appreciate you. And yes, Facebook is is a blessing, and um, I, I always look forward to to having these conversations. And I hope that at some point we're going to be able to uh, actually sit down and and drink a beer together in uh, in person. I'll I'll Absolutely. buy. You can you can hold the listeners will hold you accountable. 
<laughs> I will hold buy you for accountable. You. Yeah, hold me accountable for it. So, thanks again, man. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we will we'll chat soon. We will definitely chat soon. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it. All right. It. All right. God bless you, brother. I love you. Peace. Love you too. Bye bye.